Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? It's so great to see you. I want to welcome our Lexington campus. Can we give them a hand? We love you over at Lexington. Great to have you with us. Our Shelby campus and those of you online, thanks for joining us. We're thrilled to have you with us. What a great time of celebration and worship. Uh, I don't know about you, but I wasn't ready for it to end. Uh, but we're going to worship at the end as well, so we'll have a great time just celebrating God's goodness. To if, if you would, take your Bibles out with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 977, Ephesians chapter 2. If you're here, if you're in Lexington, if you're at one of our campuses and you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church to you. you. Want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word. God has revealed Himself. You can know Him. It is not a mystery. God has revealed Himself in His Word. And so we want you to take that with you. If you're online, you can go right now to our notes and follow along. Everything's there for you, and uh, you can join us in Ephesians chapter 2. We're in this series that we've kicked off a few weeks ago called Weird. And let's just confess this is a weird time. It's a weird time to live. It's, it's just a weird moment in our history. None of us here have ever experienced what we're experiencing right now. None of us have probably lived through a pandemic like this. And so we're talking about how do we live our identity in Christ in what, what looks like to be a new normal. What does it look like to live out identity in Jesus in the new normal with the pressures of the world coming at us? What does it look like to live out Christ when things don't look the way they did? And so we're journeying through this book, uh, an ancient book called The Letter to the Ephesians. The Apostle Paul is writing to these newfound Christians who find themselves in a similar point in history, a hinge point in history, if you will. Not quite a pandemic, but something similar. Something that they didn't expect in a, in a city that was known for its false gods. There, were, there was much conflict and opposition to their newfound faith. And so Paul writes to them and says, listen, here is what it looks like to be a Christian. Here is where you can find your identity. And can I tell you that we can glean from this ancient book some real truths about what it looks like to be a Christian in our day. In our day. We began in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, this fantastic passage, I believe one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible, where Paul proclaims, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He says this, he says, you've been chosen by the Father, you've been redeemed by the Son, you've been secured by the Spirit. This is who you are. Paul does not begin with a checklist of 10 things to do. He begins by saying, this is what God has done for you. And we said right from the very beginning that our identity is received, not achieved. It's not something we gain, not something we get, not something we accomplish. It has been given to us by God. He then followed that up here to the end of chapter 1 with a prayer. Paul is a typical preacher. He has one long sentence between verses 3 and 14, and then he comes back by ending that sermon with a prayer. And this prayer is also all one sentence. And remember last week we saw that he prayed for them, that they would understand the hope of their calling, that they would understand the glorious inheritance that they have in Christ, and that they would have power. And we, we said that he uses four different words for the word power in just one verse to describe to us that every bit of power that we need in life is available to us in the resurrection of Christ by the work of God. 
The same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us to endure, to reflect, to live out the goodness of our faithful God. That's what God has done for us. But Paul here doesn't end there. He doesn't end. Because he realizes the pull that is coming against us, right? There is a pull of the culture. There is a pull of our society. There is a pull, these narratives that tend to pull us away from who we are in Christ. If you have been a Christian, if you follow Christ for any time, you have felt the pull of those things. By the way, if you have been a Christian just for a short time, you have felt the pull of the culture, the pull of these narratives that tend to come against us, right? The narrative of, of let's just say, consumerism. This pull to have more, and if I just get this, I'll be happy. Consumerism. Or, or how about the, the pull of progressivism? Progressivism is the idea that we're just going to make everything better. And so we're going to work, 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 and we're just trying to make life better. And if I just get this and that and the other, and, and my life just gets smoother, then things will be better. And so we, we have the pull of the narrative of progressivism. There's the pull of cynicism. Cynicism is the idea that I can't trust anybody. It's all just a big joke. I don't trust any leader, I don't trust any pastor, I don't trust any person, I don't trust my coworkers, I don't trust even my wife or my spouse. I just don't trust anybody. And it's cynicism where it's constant questioning with very little answers. There even, even is a pull, a, a pull, a narrative of nationalism. Now let me walk lightly, I'm going to tread water for a moment. Nationalism is the idea that our country's pride trumps God. Can I tell you, that's true in our world right now. In the division that we're seeing, there is much nationalism. And I'm not against national pride. We should have national pride. We do have a great country. We have a lot of issues. We have a lot of things we've got to work on. We have a great country. There is a great thing about our country. We've got to be careful that national pride does not trump or become more important. No pun intended, by, that, by the way. Because more important, there's no pun intended, uh, more important than God himself. Right? National pride is this idea. By the way, my wife ran into this just the other day. She was at a store. She was in line. And uh, there were two men in front of her that were having this conversation. And one of the men uh, was talking to the other one says, you know, it just seems like, man, our country is just in turmoil right now. It just seems a lot of issues are going on. And the other man responded and says, yes, I see it too. You know what that means, right? Jesus is coming back. That was his response. Now, please know, do we believe Jesus is coming back? Absolutely. The gospel is Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended, and he's coming again. It is part of our gospel message. But isn't it interesting that we connect our national, our national viewpoint with the fact of God's timetable? As if what happens in our nation determines what God's going to do. It's called nationalism, where our country's pride trumps and goes beyond what really we should be looking for, which is the kingdom that has not yet come. It should be the yearning that we have in our hearts for that kingdom that has not yet come in Jesus Christ. And so there can be nationalism. There, there are all these pools that are pulling us away. By the way, when I think of this, I can't help but to think of, of back when I was, uh, about eight years ago, I went to, down to Tennessee and I was speaking at a youth uh, conference, a youth retreat, and they, they had all these youth there, and they had these events planned throughout the day, and so it was awesome. I got to hang out with students, and I got to play with them, and play basketball, and, and all these different things, and then I would speak a couple times a day, and uh, it was an awesome opportunity in Tennessee, and one of the th activities they had was to go whitewater rafting. Now, I've shared this story before if you've been here for a while, uh, but I remember I went whitewater rafting. Now, this was not my first time. I'd been multiple times before. In fact, I love whitewater rafting. The college I went to had a connection to a college in in uh, West Virginia, and they actually allowed us to come and raft with them on, on a river called the New River. It's one of the greatest whitewater rapids on the East Coast. It's phenomenal. 
It is phenomenal whitewater rafting. And so I've done it multiple times. And so we get there, and there's a bunch of students, and they're like, hey, we need to put an adult in every raft. And so they come to me, and I'm like, yeah, I've done it before. Like, I know what I'm doing. And so the guide gets in the raft, and he says, all right, I'm going to put you up front. I'm going to put you right in the front. I'm like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to be in the front. Why? Because when that wave hits me, when those rapids come against me, I want to feel it. Like, I want to jump over them with paddle and just, right, because there's a lot of paddling in there. And I want to show these kids how it's done. So we're going along, and it's a great day, and we're paddling, and, and it's, you know, you're, you're getting through the rapids, and it's awesome. Um, and then we get to a place where our guide says, hey, we're going to try to surf. Now, let me explain surfing. Surfing is when you, you actually turn the raft around you row as hard as you can back into the rapid, and if you hit it just right, your raft will actually sit on top of the rapid, and it will just hover. Like, you can, you can stop paddling. It just hovers. While the water is going the opposite direction, your raft pointed in the other direction. All of a sudden, your, your raft just hovers, but you got to hit it right. And so I said, all right, let's do this. And he was like, man, I think I'm up in the front, so I'm like, we're strong enough to do this. And so we paddle in. And as you can tell, I knew exactly what I was doing. And so I'm paddling in, and we get into this rapid, and you could feel it. It's coming, it's coming on. And as soon as our, our raft gets above the rapid, we just sit there. We just hover. And he says, all right, paddles in. All the paddles in the raft, and you just hover. And all of a sudden, this little wave comes up over the top right toward my face, and it just hits. And all of a sudden, we feel the raft goes. It goes like this. It goes like this. And you could feel we're getting ready to go over. It could be we tumble. And just as we do that, the rapid pushes us back out, like shoots us back out. In that moment, I'm in a raft with one guide and a bunch of teenagers. There's screams that are happening. Everybody thinks they're dying. And so we get done. Every, th this rapid shoots us out, and we start to calm down, and the young little scrawny kid behind me begins to fall into the water, and he's scared. And without even knowing it, without even taking a breath, he reaches out his hand to grab something. And guess what he grabs? My life preserver. And I end up, without even knowing it, being a great whitewater rafter, go in. Like within seconds, I'm in. I'm under the raft. I'm trying to feel my way out. It was one of those moments where I literally thought I was going to die. I thought it was the end. I was planning to take my last breath. All because this scrawny little kid pulled me in. When I think about the culture, when I think about what comes against our identity, we, we have things, narratives that are pulling every side of us. I mean, just pulling us, the culture, society, friends, work, right? All these things that can pull us away from who we are in Christ. So Paul here keeps coming back to say, here's who you are, because Paul knows something about us. Paul knows that we naturally exaggerate personal things. One of the reasons we get so pulled away is because we never think we'll be pulled away. Isn't it true? I'll never fall out of the raft. Why? Because I've done it before. I've lived a little. What happens? We, we, we exaggerate personal things. If you've ever gone fishing, you know this. You catch a fish. Ten years later, it's this. If you ever played sports, it's true, right? I mean, you were okay probably in high school, but when you're 40 and 50 years old, you were an all-athlete. You were all-American. Right? What happens? We, we exaggerate personal things. It's natural. Isn't it true we do it with our babies? Our babies begin to talk, and they'll just say this. No one knows what it means. It's some weird language. And yet we will hear a word in what they say. We exaggerate personal things. We do. What's interesting, Barner Research, a, a Christian research company, they did a poll, and they found that 9 out of 10 adults in the U.S., get this, 9 out of 10 adults 
believe their faith is very important to them. Nine out of ten adults. Whatever their faith is, they believe it's important to them. So they followed up. They did a survey. And they followed up and they asked people to rate their spiritual maturity. Whatever their spiritual background is, whatever they're following, rate their spiritual maturity in their belief system. You know what they found? That nearly 70% of the 9 out of 10, 70% believe that they were above average in spiritual maturity. Think about it. 70% of 9 out of 10, so, so let's just say it's 65 to 70% of Americans, believe they are above average in their spiritual maturity. And let me ask you, there must be two truths. First of all, as a nation, we are very spiritually mature. Anybody believe that? Or second of all, we don't know how to self-examine. We don't know how to actually get an accurate look at ourselves. And this is what Paul's doing. Follow this. Paul is saying, listen, if you're going to grasp who you are in Christ, you got to know who you are. you got to know. you got to see yourself. you got to know who you are. you got to understand your story. You have to have an accurate picture of your life. So we're going to look into a passage where he follows up his prayer with reminding them who they are. He reminds them, can I tell you, this passage may be the single most important passage in the entire Bible. And I know that's tough to say because it's the Bible, but this may be it. This summarizes the work of God in just a nutshell. It's absolutely beautiful. Take a look with me. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. In them. Paul here answers three questions that we might ask. As we read this text, we might ask these questions. So he answers these questions. I want to look at these three questions. The first one is this What are we saved from? Saved from what? If God has saved us, if he has rescued us, what has he saved us from? Now, save this is kind of an old term. Uh, we don't use this, but it is in essence what God has done, right? We need it rescued. We need it rescued. And God saved us. So what do we save from? Save from what? I want you to see what he says here. What Paul gives us is really an answer to two myths that we have had since the beginning of time, since the fall. Two myths that we have about people. They're kind of two myths. Well, first of all, the first myth is that when we look at evil, we actually think the problem is somebody else. It is natural for us, when we look at the evil in the world, it's never us, it's always them, whoever they are. We are quick to point fingers. We are quick to point fingers to other people. We believe the main problem is the world is other people. That's why we put locks on doors, that's why we act in suspicion. 
By the way, this goes hand in hand with the second myth, and that myth is this. Not only do we think the problem is other people, we actually think we're quite good. Right? We look at our life and say, listen, I'm not that bad. I'm actually a pretty good person. I, I mean, I get confused and lose my way sometimes, and sometimes I'm weak, but I'm really not that bad. I want to show you how Paul begins this. He confronts both of those myths. Take a look at ver- chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and you. Notice he doesn't say other people. And you, you, me. It's personalized. And you, and then he answers the second myth with the word, are dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses. He says the problem is not that really good people who occasionally lose their way and do bad things. He says the problem is we are spiritually dead. You, I, we are spiritually dead. We are dead with no capacity to live. We are without life. He says we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses. And now I I love the way he he labels us as dead. Notice he says in our trespasses. This word trespass is actually, it's, it's the word that means to fall to the side. In fact, both trespass and sin comes from the same idea of hitting a target. Trespass has the idea that you're intentionally not trying to hit the target. Sin is the word hamartia, and it actually means you miss the target even incidentally. You never hit the target. You always miss. So he uses both words to say sometimes we're intentionally trying to miss a target, and somebody, it's, sometimes it's incidental. It's part of our nature. We don't hit the target. We miss the target. When, when I think of these words, I can't help but to think years ago, uh, some of our staff, the guys on our staff, um, decided to go axe-throwing. Now, this is before we had an axe-throwing place here in Mansfield. It's pretty cool. You should try it sometime. Um, but, but we went to Columbus, and we went to this axe-throwing place. We thought it would be a really cool hangout as a bunch of guys. And so we, we invited some guys to come. Now, there was a, quite a few. It was a, an eclectic group. Why? Because that is some of us that are very athletic. Right? We're really athletic, of course. We don't exaggerate either. <laughs> and so some of us are really athletic, and some of us, our worship arts pastors. Ernesto Alcantara. And he's like, let's go. And he was fired up about this. And I'm like, this is going to be fun to watch. Like the guy can hit notes all over the place. But is there, a, I mean, is he, is there an athletic bone in his body? I mean, he's super kind and just a tender heart. He loves Jesus. And, but he loves music. I mean, he's artistic. That's what he does. And I'm like, this is going to be, I mean, and so we were talking. Some of us, you know, athletic guys, we were talking. We were like, this is going to be a blast to see Ernesto throw an axe. Like, we're looking forward to watching him throw an axe more than anybody else. So we get to this axe-throwing place, and Ernesto gets up, and we're all ready. Everybody's cameras are out. Like, we got our phones out. We're like, we're going to get this on camera. And he gets up there, and he takes the axe over his head, and he throws it, and it hits the target, like the direct center of the target. And it sticks. And we all look at each other and go, We've been duped. He is a supreme athlete, and we didn't know it. He can sing and throw axes. I mean, this is the perfect combination. Like, we are no good. We can't sing, but we might be able to throw an axe, and we weren't hitting the target anyway. I mean, it was amazing, right? This is the image, right? For, it's, it's you and I. We throw at the target of life. We never hit it. Sin. We never hit it. We're always missing the mark, and sometimes intentionally we say, forget the target. 
and that's trespasses. He says, you are dead in your trespasses in sin. There is no capacity in you to live because you're dead. In fact, he follows it up by saying, in which you once walked. The word peripateo, which means to roam. We, you and I, without Christ, are roaming around, missing the target with sin and trespass. We can never make it. We can never add up. We have no capacity to fix it. We are dead in sins. Now, before I go any further, I know some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute, Dave. Wait a minute here. Are you saying I'm capable of doing nothing good? No, being spiritually dead, as Paul describes it, doesn't mean we're all as bad as we could be. There are some good things that we do. They are selflessly motivated usually, but there are good things that we can do. But let's just be honest. If you go out to a battlefield and there are 20 corpses that are laying in the field, some of them are going to look better than others. Some of them may even not look like they're dead. They may look alive, but they're actually dead. But the fact remains, they are dead. Here's what Paul's saying. Our bad actions are symptoms of a deeper condition. Our bad actions are a symptom of our dead condition. You don't have uh, the flu because you cough and sneeze. You cough and sneeze because you have the flu. You and I, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. By the way, if you have kids, you know this. Those kids come out and they are inherently sinful. Like I remember, I remember my, young, my oldest son, David, when he was born and we would put him in the crib, every time he cried, we would come in and check on him, right? Remember that as new parents, if, you, if you're a parent, and man, you hear the cry and you're like, I gotta go check on him, I gotta go check on him. Oh, I gotta go check on him. And it was like a race to see who gets there first between Allison and I. Then you had the fourth kid, and you've learned some things. I have you know, four sons, and my youngest son, when he was born, we learned that they very quickly learned to cry to manipulate. Now listen, I didn't teach them that. Maybe mom taught them when I wasn't looking. But, but right, they begin, they cry, and they learn to cry, and if you're a parent, right, you know you learn, they cry differently, don't they? They cry a little bit differently, and that cry is manipulative. Who teaches them that? It's intrinsic. They're, they're little demons at birth. I'm kidding, but I'm not. They are, you ever heard the expression D-O-A? They are dead upon arrival. According to Paul, we are dead in sin. We are dead upon arrival. Sin is intrinsic in us. It doesn't matter which way you slice it. He says we are dead in sin. Notice he goes on, not only are we dead, but he says we're dominated. Not only is there no capacity to live, there's no capacity to resist. Take a look at what he says. Verse 2, in which you once walk following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is the uh, idea of Satan here. In the first century, the air was considered evil spirits. And so the idea of going into the air was weird to them. Um, it's one of the reasons why in the Roman Empire, you really didn't have upper levels in those big, big uh, pantheons. They, they actually dug down to build uh, the amphitheaters. Why? Because there was the idea of the air. The air had evil spirits flying. And so Paul here uses that language. It says, following the prince of the power of the air, right, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, we were dominated. There was no capacity to resist. 
There was no freedom. You not only were without life, we were without freedom by the world, the pressures of the world, the culture around us being led away from God by the enemy and the prince of the power of the air. They right, were pulled away by our own desires. He says, by our flesh, by the desires of our body and our mind. We are pulled away. By the way, this is what James says in James 1. The impulses of our lives pull us away. We are dominated, much like Michigan. We are dead. We are dominated. We're also destined. We are destined in the sense there's no capacity for us to change. There's no capacity for us to change ourselves. We are without life, we're out without freedom, and we are without hope. Notice what he says and by, at the end of verse 3, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In Greek, this is called a dative of direction. It is actually a destination, dative of de- destination. It literally means that we are children destined to wrath. It is our end goal is that we experience the wrath of God. Now, let me pause here. We, we are dead, we are dominated, we are destined. Now, if you pause here and you're like, okay, Dave, that sounds great. It's almost like Paul is writing this and you're going to say, okay, Paul, where's the encouragement? Be encouraged. You're dead. You're dominated. You, you can't have no capacity to fix it. No, no help. Let's leave. Let's pray right now and leave on that note. Here's what Paul gets. Paul gets that you'll never appreciate who you are in Christ if you don't first remember where you've come from. Paul understood that until you understand the problem, you'll never cherish the solution. Can I tell you, I think one of the biggest issues we're having in our culture right now is we don't understand the problem. When we understand the problem, we can then celebrate the solution. Everybody's got ideas, but no one's fixing anything. Why? Because we've got to identify the problem. We've got to come to the conclusion of who we are. You'll never grasp your new identity in Christ if you don't understand what's going on, if you don't understand the problem. So here he says it. He says it as clear as day. He says, let me tell you who you are. You're dead. You're dead spiritually. Yeah, you're, you're walking around. You're walking in the world, but you're roaming aimlessly. You're dead. But then we come to verse 4. Verse 4 begins with probably the greatest conjunction in the entire Bible. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, but God, I love the old preacher John Stott, he called it the greatest two syllables ever written in the English language, but God, I call it the biggest but of the Bible, but God, I want you to consider, let this sink in for a moment. Let the truth of this sink in. Let the force of it sink in. You and I were helpless, but God. You and I were helpless, but God. What does that tell us? You and I were helpless, but we were not hopeless. See, we find our hope in a different source. We were helpless, but we weren't hopeless. Why? But God. But God who is rich in mercy. But God who has steadfast, loyal, great love with which he has loved us. This love that's kind of rare that only God can show to his enemies. See, God didn't, by the way, God didn't just set justice aside. We deserve wrath. God took justice on himself. But God who is rich in mercy 
because of his great love for us. And notice what he says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So second question that Paul answers. First of all, saved from what? Secondly, saved by what? What what are we saved by? I want you to notice he repeats a phrase twice. He gives us the answer. So by God's love, by God's rich mercy, but notice he goes on. He says, verse five, even when we were dead in the trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Notice it, he says it, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one could boast. He says twice, here is how we have been saved. Here's the by. From sin, by grace. Grace, by definition, is the unmerited, undeserved, and unearned gift of God. It is by grace that we are saved. And notice, he wants us to know you can't boast You have no capacity to save yourself. There's no good work that you can do. There's no sacrifice you can make. There's not enough you can do. No one can do this by their own doing. It is by the gift of God of grace. I want you to see this. This is powerful. Notice verse verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't of your doing. It is the gift of God. Now, in the Greek, this is constructed to say the gift of God is the grace of God that leads to faith in God. Meaning, if you want to know the gift that God gave you, it was not only his grace by dying on the cross and rising again, it was also the gift of faith to allow you to believe him. Like, that's how much the capacity didn't match. I have no capacity to save myself. I can't have faith on my own. Why? Because I'm going to trust in everything else. So what does God do? In his grace, in his loving kindness, in his mercy, he gives us a gift. The gift is what? The gift of grace the gift of faith. Grace that is able, faith that responds. And he says this all, this whole expression is a gift from God. And no one here can boast about it. Here's the point. It, it, it'd be like being out in the ocean. And you know, we maybe you've heard this illustration before. Out in the ocean and I'm drowning and somebody throws a life preserver and they save you. Paul here says, no, 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 you weren't like even treading water. You were face down in the water. And God picked you out, and he brought you up, and he gave you life. That's the image. It's not just that we're drowning. It's that we're dead. And he makes us alive. And by the way, notice the words he uses, the description. Verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, we, we were dead. He made us alive together with Christ by grace you can say, verse six, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice both in Christ, with Christ. He made us alive. He seated us in the heavenly. Positionally, we are with Christ today. Not, not personally, not practically, but we are positionally with Christ today so that in the coming ages, one day he might show the greatness of his grace and his kindness. One day, this idea of grace is still going to be unpacked for centuries, for history. We'll be unpacking the goodness of God's grace. But here's the beauty. I want you to see those words. He raised us together with Christ, and he lifted us up. Those, both of those words, Paul does something very interesting here. He begins both words with a prefix, and the prefix is where we get our word sink. Not kitchen sink, but in sink. Some of you didn't get that. Bye, bye, bye. In sync, 
sync up, sync your phone, sync your computer. That's the word. He begins both of these words with the word sync. Why? Because when your life by grace through faith is connected, synced to Christ, what happens? He makes you alive. What what happens? He then seats you in the heavenly places so that for the ages to come, he might show you the incredible greatness of his grace to you. That's the image. It is by grace through faith, he sinks us up into a relationship. I want you to see the contrast. We're dead, now we're alive in Christ. We, We are dominated by sin. We are recipients of generous mercy. We are children destined for wrath. We are now recipients of grace and love. He transforms the message of our lives. We're saved from sin by grace. In fact, the word saved here both times, Paul changes the tense. Now I know I'm going a little deep with the language here, but I think it's so powerful, so beautiful. In fact, every other place, notice it says you were dead in sin. You, you did follow, you did walk this way. And then he says, but you've been saved. The word saved actually is in the perfect tense. Now, what does that mean? It's all Greek to you. I get it. Perfect tense is the idea that there is a definitive point in the past that it happened, that he saved you. But the effect is continuing. So when he says you were dead, there is a definitive point in the past where you're dead, but it doesn't matter. It kind of ends. It's gone. There's some point it doesn't exist anymore. You're dead. It goes away. But when you're saved, what happens? It's perfect. It happened at one point, but it continues to have effect in your life. It continues to go forward. That's the word he uses. It is a perfect tense. He's saying it happened in the past, but it continues to have effect. I think it's very interesting. He's saying that sin is a temporary reality for a Christian, but salvation stands as something that still has present impact in your life. Now he changes to what's called the present tense, what's happening now. Verse 10, take a look. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Saved from sin, saved by grace. Now the question is, saved for what? Saved for what? Notice what he says. Saved from sin, saved by grace. And then he says, You are saved for something. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Now, this word workmanship, I love this word. It's the word in Greek, poema. That should sound familiar because we get another word from that word. What does it sound like? Poema is where we get our word poem. Literally, poema is uh, a word that means craftsman or worker. This word reminds me of my wife. My wife is very crafty. She has a craft room. And in that craft room, she'll sew and then she'll make paintings and then she'll make creative things and I mean she loves to tinker with these different things my wife's so creative like she'll go out like she went out the other week and just build a garden she's like I just want to build a garden and she just built it and I like for me to build a garden I have to go out and I have to I have to watch YouTube videos I got to call the farmer next door like if I'm gonna make my wife just goes out she's very creative in that way and so she creates and when I read this word I think of my wife I think of her craft room. It's just crafty. It's creative. Here's what he's saying. Listen, for we are his workmanship. What does that mean? We, as we do good works, that's the answer, right? Saved for what? We are saved for good works. We become the poem of God. We become the poem of God's purpose. We become the epic poem of God's story of redemption. He saves us by, from sin by grace and now brings us into his workmanship. The epic poem of God. 
saved from the wrath of God, by the work of God, now for the work of God, from sin to service. And notice what he says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By the way, I want you to notice it says that we should walk in them. Do you notice the repetition of the word walk? Verse 1, you were dead in sins. You were dead in trespasses. It's the way you walked. And then he comes at the end and says, God has given good works that you should walk in them. He ends it with this inclusio of walking, walking. You know why? Let me tell you why. Walking is one of the places where you find your identity physically. You know, scientists say not only do our fingerprints have unique indentations, but so do our walk. Our walk is actually pretty unique. right? You can tell who somebody is by how they walk. Every person has a different uh, walk, a different style, a different, right? For, for some, you walk fast, right? You go fast. For, for others, your walk is more of like the, the cool, right? Like, hey, what's up? What's up, yo? Right? That's you. That, that's how I walk. I mean, that's my, my walk. Right? See, I see people. I, I had this happen the other day. I saw somebody. I was like, I don't know if that's them or not. And then they got up and they started walking. I'm like, that's them. I knew exactly who they were. Our walk is actually so unique. So when he says here, according to what he's called you to, right, he's prepared before that you should walk. And here's what he's saying. Actions don't give you identity. Actions don't give you identity. Christ gives you identity. Grace gives you identity. The work of God, salvation gives you identity. Actions don't give you identity. Actions reveal your identity. Actions matter. Works matter. Today, you can determine, does someone know Christ or not? But not because they just do good works. You can't get there by doing good works. It's the fact that our walk reveals what we really believe. And so we can tell who we are. If you want to find your identity, how do you walk? Notice he makes a full loop here back to this walking. Now, I want to bring a couple thoughts up here before we end about the work that God is calling us to. He calls us to walk in the good works that he's prepared before him. A couple thoughts. First of all, all works by God's grace for God's glory are good works. What do I mean by that? If you want to know whether you're walking in the good works that God has prepared before, I'd ask these two questions. Is this based out of your good grace that I'm walking this way? And is it for your glory? Folks, imagine if we started asking that in our marriages. Imagine if we started asking that in, with our kids. Imagine if we started asking, God, am I, am I walking out of your grace for your glory? Imagine if we did that in our workplaces. Imagine if we started asking questions about the good works that are coming out of our lives. Again, God's not up there trying to strike us down. He's trying to encourage us in identity. God is trying to encourage us in the identity we have and saying how we walk reveals who we are. Secondly, there is no divide between what is sacred and secular. There is no divide between sacred and secular. The sacred and secular in Christ are brought together. We are saved by grace through faith. Now we are his workmanship. We are his po poem. And, and, and in our lives as Christians, there is no deterrent between secular and sacred. In fact, everything that is secular now takes a sacred form. Your workplace. It's not just to make money. It's sacred. That, that meeting you have, that you hate and you dread over Zoom because someone's going to keep their microphone on while they're doing something. It's not sacred. It's, 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 it's not secular. It's sacred. All of that matters. Our marriages, our kids, all of these things now take a different form. When we understand there's no distinction between sacred and secular, everything is sacred. Everything matters. 
And then lastly, each Christian must discover the good works that God has prepared for them. Right now, you, you have a unique spiritual gifting. You have a unique heart. You have a unique ability. You have a unique personality. You have unique experiences. God is drawing you in to say, I want you to walk in them. I prepared things for you right before your eyes. I prepared things, and he's saying, I want you to walk in them personally. I want you to walk into what I'm calling you to. That's identity. If I know who I was without Christ, and I know but God, who is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, who gave me the gift of salvation by faith, then what happens? I want to walk in what you've called me to walk in. I want to walk uniquely. I want to step into personally what you're calling me to. Folks, can I tell you, I believe as a church this is true. I believe as a church, God has, God has already prepared works for us to do in North Central Ohio that we just have to step into. He's already prepared it. Like it's, it's a done deal on his timetable. And all we have to do is step into those works by obedience, by the faith that we have in Christ. Not, not to earn his favor, but because we have his favor. We step into them personally. Right now, right now, God is calling you right before your eyes. He's calling you into things, and he's saying, will you step into them? If you know who you are, you know what he's done. Saved from sin by grace for something that is an amazing epic poem to the glory of God. As we end, I, there are some of you here, maybe you don't know the gospel. You do not know Jesus Christ. Here is one of the clearest pictures of salvation. It's not your works. It's not your religion. It's not your relationship with your family. It's Christ. From sin, by grace, through faith. And maybe you're here and you're willing even today to transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're right now in Lexington. Maybe you're online. You're willing to transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus Christ. Maybe right now God is doing that work in you. He is giving you a gift of salvation by grace through faith. I, I want to read the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. Listen to this. This is what he says. He said, it is the grace of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is so hard for many of us to understand. It confronts us with the truth that says you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as a sinner that you are to a God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you. He doesn't want to sacrifice. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't need it. He wants you alone. God has come to save you to save, come, come to you to save the sinner. So he says, be glad. The message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. And I love this statement because it makes more sense in our day. He says, the mask that you wear before men, and he's not talking about COVID masks. The mask that you wear before men will do you no good before Christ. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You don't have to go online to yourself. He says, come. And maybe today would be the day that you take that step of faith of saying, I'm transferring my trust from myself to Jesus. There are many of you, you know the truth. You know Christ. How are your actions revealing your identity? How are your actions revealing? And I'm talking about actions, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, even on social media. Yes, I went there. How do my actions reflect my true identity? 
Do I know where I've come from? Do I know what God has done but God? Do I know what he's calling me into so I can step into personally the good works he's prepared beforehand? You know, I don't think there's any better way to symbolize this than with communion. You, you should have been given this little cup and on the top there's a little opening for the wafer and it was in Luke chapter 22 we read that Jesus on the night before he died he gathered with the disciples he gathered with them and, and, he, and he said he took a little wafer out and this wafer this bread unleavened bread the Passover meal and he says hey th- this thing this is, a, this is a, a picture of my body which will be broken for you Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took out that little wafer and he ate it. And he said, eat of it. It's my body. You know what he was saying there? He says, listen, your body's broken too. Your body's broken too, but I have to break my body in order to bring your body into redemption. You're broken with sin. You're dead in sin. You're dominated by sin. You, you are destined for wrath. But, but i got to break my body. I'm going to have it broken out so that you can have salvation. He says, remember. Re- remember my body, which is broken. Then he took the cup after supper. It was called the cup of redemption in the Passover meal. And he said, take and drink of this. This is my blood of the new covenant. Which Do this in remembrance. Remember the blood that is bringing a covenant to you of life. That's the new covenant. It's not a covenant of death. It's a covenant of life to say you can have a relationship with the creator of the universe. And he said, take and drink. This is a reminder of my blood, which is spilled for you. You know what I think is interesting? When we remember what Jesus has done, we're remembering our own story. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. My body is broken and deserving of wrath. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, gave his body on a cross. But God who is abounding in steadfast love poured out his blood for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And today when we remember him, we're remembering us. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask you just, would you right where you are. Just take some time to ponder this. Pray. Search your own heart. How are you walking in your identity in Christ? And then we're going to end in worship, celebrating the goodness of God. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Lord, we need a reminder of who we are. God, we get so lost in what we're trying to be that, Lord, by remembering who we are, we can then see where we need to go. God, God, I think about The fact that we are dead in trespasses and sin. Lord, since the fall, we've been dead. We've been dominated. We've been destined to wrath. There's no escaping it. Uh, Lord, we are without life. We are without freedom. We are without hope. But you, God, you, God, who is rich in, in, in mercy, abounding in love, you saved us by grace, the unearned, unmerited, undeserved gift of grace by faith. So that now as we remember your body that was broken, we remember your blood that was spilled out, Lord, we're remembering our own story, our own story of brokenness, our own story of the fact that without your blood, there is no forgiveness. But because you came and died on that cross, because you walked out of the grave, we can now walk in newness of life. We can walk with the good works that you prepared beforehand. God, I pray that we would step into them personally to what you have for us to do next. And God, this moment of communion is not only a memorial, it is a call. It's a call to live out your gospel. It's a call to walk the way you would desire us to walk, to reflect your glory. So may our identity be reflected in our actions. All for your name, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love and mercy. It's in your name, Jesus.
crosses. We're going to sing uh, the next two songs. And like Pastor Dave said, take this moment and reflect. Um, you can take the elements as you feel led. Um, and if at any point you wanted to stand up and join us in, in worship, uh, feel free to do that. But let's take the next few moments and just reflect on Jesus and all that he's done for us. Amen. <laughs>